All right, we welcome you to uh, Plum Creek this morning, and um, lots of things on my heart and mind as we continue to think about the return of the Lord, the glorious uh, millennial kingdom, and ultimately the eternal state when uh, time shall be no more and we shall see all things made new. So I'll uh, get into that in just a second, but just a couple of quick uh, announcements uh, this morning. Uh we uh, did. We finally resumed our podcast with the Christian Underground News Network, and those of you that have been following Not by Works for a while know that that was uh, something we did for over a year on the first on every Tuesday, every Tuesday of the week. It was a standing weekly thing, and uh, we enjoyed getting into all kinds of topics. Uh, he's a great host and uh, just a real a good friend too. Um, has become a good friend. I had not met him until we did the podcast, but I knew uh, his know his dad, but uh, had not met Curtis. But anyway, then of course uh, a couple months ago he got really sick and was kind of down for the count, and we were uh, we had to he, he canceled all podcasting for a while. But we're back up and running. We uh, we had our uh, interview on uh, Thursday, September the eighth. And uh, uh, we talked about comforting words in a confusing world, and we looked at John 14 and the rapture and, and all that's going on in the world and, and how that should comfort us. So I encourage you to go back and check that out. Again, it's podcast only. There's no video for that particular interview, uh, but you can check that out wherever you listen to the Not By Works uh, podcast. And then want to give a quick update on uh, Volume 2 of Spirit of the Antichrist. Most of you by now have read Volume 1. If you haven't, you can certainly check that out at spiritoftheantichrist.org. But Volume 2 is now set to be released late October, and uh, really, really can't wait for that. You know, I, I almost hope the rapture doesn't preempt it, but I guess if the rapture happened, I'd be okay. We wouldn't need the book. But, um, but anyway, it's really something that I'm, I'm excited about and growing more and more excited about each day. So pray for us as we put the finishing touches on it and all the final stage things that come along with uh, writing a book, you know, you've the final edits, the typesetting, the uh, cover, and all of that stuff. So, anyway, uh, it's uh, a little bit beefier than the first one because I didn't quite have enough to stretch it into three volumes. I mean, I'm, we could stretch it into that. There's no shortage of material on this battle between Satan and Christ to take over the world. But uh, I decided to just kind of fit it all in. So it's going to be a little bit longer book, but it covers the the gamut of of, of important timely topic. So pray for that. Uh, if you uh, are not aware, we do also now have Spirit of the Antichrist uh, Volume 1 available in PDF format for in, in importing it into the Kindle and other e-readers. And um, I'm surprised at uh, the interest in that. You know, for uh, the first uh, several, six months or so that the book was out, I would get emails regularly from people overseas and Not By Works doesn't ship overseas other than Canada. And so uh, in every case, I would say, uh, you know, they were saying, hey, can, you, can I get this electronically? And I said, I would say, no, but we don't sell it electronically, but I'm happy to make it available to you. And I bet I gave away 50 copies of the book in digital form, just emailing them back and say, hey, thanks for your interest. It's my gift to you. Uh, but uh, finally, I just decided, well, let's just see. So we, we started selling it. It's a little bit cheaper than the print book. Uh, but we get orders every day for people that want to put it in their Kindle. And so I guess that's the world we live in. But it is available. Um, and uh, happy, you know, hopefully you can spread the word about that. All right. I was thinking about uh, just all of the things that we've been talking about in terms of um, 
the end times, and, and I've been doing you know a lot of writing and research, you know, finishing up the the book, and my mind turned to this this week in particular to the role Israel plays in the end times, and you know we talked a lot about that in terms of the millennial phase of the kingdom, but in the last few weeks we've been talking about what comes after that, the uh, the new heavens and the new earth. So if you see this chart on the screen here. The first phase of the Messianic kingdom on the far right involves uh, Israel uh, and returning to the land as promised in Scripture and uh, Christ taking the throne in the rebuilt temple uh, that Ezekiel describes, the temple in all of its glory, and Christ is ruling the world in perfect peace and righteousness and justice for a thousand years. And then, of course, uh, as we talked about, Satan is let loose from prison, where he's been for that thousand-year period. And there's one final battle, and then God destroys uh, the uh, created heavens and earth uh, that are under the curse of sin ever since the fall, and recreates everything in sinless perfection. And that's where we've camped out uh, the last few weeks, and that's where we'll go again today when we get to Revelation 22. But as I was thinking about that, I started thinking about especially in because in what I'm writing right now or piecing together the finishing touches of one of the chapters in my book has me focused on Israel and the uh, Balfour Declaration in World War One, and then the establishment of Israel as a nation state again on May 14th, 1948 after World War Two. And so I've just been thinking about God's chosen nation, Israel, and I was reminded of a verse we've looked at uh, several times all, you know, through the months in this uh, series. Uh, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 31. And so this is, the context is when Christ is coming back. So it's the end of the seven-year tribulation. Uh, the Antichrist reign has reached its uh, waning moments. Uh, he, he will be destroyed at the Battle of Armageddon when Christ comes back. Uh, then he and the false prophet, the Antichrist and the false prophet, are cast into the uh, lake of fire uh, or the everlasting fire, I guess. Uh, and then, uh, and then Christ says this. He will in verse thirty-one. He will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from uh, from from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. The elect here is talking about Israel. The whole context here is about Israel. We see references to the abomination of desolation that Daniel prophesied. We see references to the Sabbath. We see. Uh, the Christ coming and sitting on his throne, the throne of his temple, which he talks about in chapter 25, verse 31. Uh, obviously, the church is not in existence at this stage of the game. The church doesn't get founded until uh, uh, 10 days after Christ's ascension, which was 50 days after his crucifixion. And uh, so he's talking here, to the disciples about the coming kingdom and when will the kingdom for Israel finally be inaugurated. Now, this, without getting too repetitive of what we've covered in the past, but I know we're picking up new folks all the time, uh, the, king, the theme of the kingdom is crucial to understanding God's end times plan. And it goes all the way back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. So even before the nation of Israel was formally established, you know, God promised Father Abraham these uh, covenants that are unconditional, that will come about, that involve a seed, land, and blessing. 
And the seed is ultimately the king of kings, Christ himself, who will reign on the throne. And then all through the Old Testament, which is all about national Israel, you know, if you want to summarize the distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament, even though it's, of course, one redemptive story from Genesis to Revelation, the Old Testament focuses on God's national promises to Israel, and the New Testament focuses on individual promises to every human being. Uh, and God, and in that way, the plan comes together. But uh, the, the, the Old Testament, you know, throughout all the prophets, you see this repeated promise of a kingdom for Israel someday. David, for example, in 2 Samuel 7, was promised that a king from his uh, seed would someday take the throne and rule forever and ever. Um, we see the boundaries marked out. We see the dimensions of the millennial temple, as I referenced a minute ago in Ezekiel. Um, and so what Jesus is, is, is saying here in Matthew 24, 31, really cannot be overemphasized. It is the, the fulfillment of countless verses in the Old Testament that refer to Israel becoming a nation once again and, and getting their kingdom. And I want to just look at a few of those just to emphasize and sort of underscore how important the role of Israel is in God's end times plan. So, uh, again, we're, we're starting at Matthew 24, 31. Uh, he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other and, and supernaturally bring them back to the land. But let's go back to... I guess we'll start in reverse order. We'll start with Jeremiah, uh, who was a you know, 5th century B.C. prophet, or 6th century in that time frame. Jeremiah 32, 37. And Jeremiah, in the context of the Babylonian exile, and this is where we get the new covenant and the ultimate promises, he says in chapter 32, verse 37, Behold, I will gather them out of all countries where I have driven them in my anger, in my fury, and in great wrath. I will bring them back to this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. So that's a promise that Israel can, can bank on. And this, again, we're moving forward in time, getting closer to the first century and the, the incarnation, the life and ministry of Christ, the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. But even after the Babylonian exile, we're still seeing uh, these uh, promises. And then uh, let's go to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 30, several places we could look here, but start out in chapter 36, uh, verse 24. Ezekiel 36, 24. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. This is the promise. Uh, and, and this is what Jesus is referring to. In the next chapter, chapter 37, uh, in the dry bones context, we see him saying in verse 25, They shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob my servant, where your fathers dwelt. There they shall, uh, they shall dwell there, they, they, their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. So that's another reason why, if you look at the chart on the screen, you know I prefer to think of the kingdom as a cohesive unit, even though there's a clear dividing line between the kingdom when it's on the old earth and the kingdom when it's on the new earth. <laughs> it's still one kingdom that continues in perpetuity. That's why the arrow at the end there has a, you know, the line there has an arrow at the end of it, because 
eternity is, is timeless, obviously. On the far left, we, do, we have a no arrow because there was a point at which time began, and this is a timeline, so it must have a beginning, but it doesn't have an end, right? There is no end to God's uh, eternal plan. So, uh, so that's Ezekiel. We could look at, um, go all the way back to Moses and look at Deuteronomy chapter 30. And uh, verse uh, 3, and it says, uh, Deuteronomy 30, verse 3, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. So this is going back another thousand years earlier from Jeremiah. This is the 1400s B.C. Jeremiah was, you know, 500 or so. So... Uh, you know, all along, the point is, all along, God has his chosen nation. And as Paul makes, makes the argument in Romans chapters 9 through 11, who are we to argue against God? I don't know why God didn't pick, you know, Costa Rica or America or, you know, Zimbabwe. He could have picked any nation, but he chose Israel. And that land is his holy land. There's something special about that geographic region. And he called his people into that land. And... Uh, in 70 A.D., when the temple was destroyed, uh, Israel was scattered, and essentially since that time, they've not really had a homeland. Uh, God's nation is still His nation, and God, of course, knows who the Jews are and where they are. And God, you know, 2,000 years to God is really nothing, so it seems like it was a long time before they were finally allowed to return to the land in 1948. From God's perspective, he knows exactly where they all are and where they've been. And that's why it's going to be a supernatural regathering uh, of Israel in the land someday. But, you know, we, 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 we have to, I guess what struck me was understanding both the, the physical reality of life as we know it for the last 6,000 years and this new heavens and the new earth. We, we tend to think more... Um, ethereally, I guess, of, of the eternal state and think of it ideologically. And we need to recognize that in, in large part, and that's, I think you can see this represented on the chart, when you step across that dividing line from the old heaven and the old earth, really all that has changed is that now there's no, the curse of sin is removed. So we're walking on a holy ground as it was once holy. Uh, it was created in perfection, holiness. And then we messed it up with sin. And for the last 6,000 years, we've been dealing with, you know, a sinful creation. And it's gotten worse and worse and worse, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.13, that it would get worse and worse and worse. And so uh, in the, as we think about the glorious time to come when we shall no longer see sorrow or hurting or pain or anything like that, we need to think of it in, in a in, in an is, uh, Israeli sense, in a, in a you know, making sure we we understand that God has not like abandoned Israel as a central focal point of His plan. Uh, you know, in the eternal state, that's why we have the New Jerusalem, right? We don't see any talk in Scripture about a new Washington D.C. or a new Moscow or a new Beijing, right? We see a new Jerusalem, right? The house of God, the place of God. And so, um, you know, we, we are right to 
understand the role of Israel in the end times plan and to uh, ally with, with uh, Israel. Of course, Israel is not yet in the land in belief. I point this out regularly that the fulfillment of all of these passages, in my estimation, even in the fulfillment of uh, fulfillment of uh, Ezekiel 37, the dry bones, has not happened yet. Uh, what's happened? What happened in 1948 was a setting of the stage, a beginning, sort of the rumblings of, "Hey, Israel has a future," and. Of course, that got Satan's attention too, and as I'm going to talk about in the new book, that's why there's such an uptick in cosmic and phenomenalistic type things that started right around that time. Uh, but th this is not the fulfillment. So today, just as in America, there are you know, Luciferian leaders that are aiding and abetting the enemy to try to usher in a one-world political, religious, and economic system, so too in Israel. We love them, we respect them, we understand God has a future for them. But they're not there in belief. Now, that doesn't mean there are no Jewish believers. The world is full of Jewish believers. Um, but as a nation, in, in their government, they've not turned their hearts to the Lord and cried, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus plainly said in Matthew 23 that he won't come again and gather them into the land until they do that. And then Paul describes in Romans 9 through 11 kind of the theological uh, uh, premise behind that that before a nation can call on the name of the Lord and be delivered into their kingdom they must first individually believe the gospel because the kingdom at the start of the kingdom over here when Christ comes back at the end of the tribulation is only believers it's not unbelievers so you got to be a believer first so every human being that ever walked the face of the earth has to believe the gospel trust in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation but as a nation once they have believed, in fact, if you want to look at Romans uh, 10, we looked at this uh, verse uh, uh, Wednesday night in our series that, we're, uh, that John Sperling is leading on uh, Good News Made Clear. And it was hard for me to not chime in and, and talk about the eschatology behind this verse, uh, but I, I refrained, I resisted the temptation. But notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 10. Um, let's start in verse uh, 13. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, if you have a good English translation, that is in quotations because that's a quote of the prophet Joel in Joel chapter 2, verse 32. And in the context, both in Joel and in Romans, he's talking about national salvation and deliverance into the kingdom. So remember, Paul starts chapter 10 by saying, My heart's desire and prayer for God is that they may be saved. Saved does not always mean eternal salvation. In fact, more than 50% of the time in Scripture, saved means physical or temporal salvation or deliverance, and such is the case here. Paul wants uh, Israel to be delivered into the kingdom. That's what chapters 9 through 11 are all about. Has God forsaken Israel? Has he abandoned his promise? Has he reneged on his promise? No. Israel will get their kingdom. In fact, you flip over to the end of this section, chapter 11, he says, someday, verse 25, uh, blindness in part has happened to Israel today, but someday the fullness of the Gentiles will come in, until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, and then someday all Israel will be delivered. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. Who is that? That's Christ. And, uh, and keep his covenant with them. So 
uh, in Rome, back to Romans 10, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But notice he goes on to say in verse 14, but how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? See, unbelievers don't call on the name of the Lord. I mean, they may in desperation, oh my God, you know, I'm dying, but that, that's, that's not the call that the Lord hears. You have to believe in faith first. And so, how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And then he goes on to say, they have not all obeyed the gospel, quoting Isaiah 53 there, uh, which uh, somebody quoted uh, the whole chapter Friday night at our church fellowship. That was amazing. But it starts out with, Lord, who has believed our report? Uh, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So here's the point. Some, right now, God is setting the stage for the return of Israel to the land. For the first time in 1900 years, we see the nation of Israel on our maps. We saw a, a partial return and people beginning to kind of come back to the land and not have to be hiding out throughout the world. Um, they're not there in belief yet. Some of them may be believers, but as a nation, they have not all trusted in Christ. But someday, at the end of the tribulation, uh, Christ, uh, during the tribulation, the, the 144,000 Jewish witnesses will be going out, spreading the gospel to everyone. Israel will have one final chance to believe the gospel. That's what I believe the parable of the talents is all about. And they will, in, in, in large part, believe the gospel. Not everyone. Some will still be deceived and take the mark, but most of the Jews will believe the gospel. And then and only then will they cry out, Blessed is you who comes in the name of the Lord in fulfillment of Psalm 118. Christ, as we read about in Matthew 24, will regather them from everywhere they are and deposit them in the land, and he will set up his kingdom. It must be kind of nice to take over a kingdom and be able to instantly just fill it up with people that believe in you and support you. You know, And that's what Christ uh, is going to do. So I just wanted to reiterate as we think about the Revelation 22 and the, the uh, new heavens and the new earth, the eternal state, that this isn't like completely disconnected to God's plan. It's a cohesive plan from beginning to end. And Israel... Uh, you know, plays a central role in that. Any comments or questions about anything while I take a drink? <laughs> Any thoughts on anything we've talked about? Make sense? Okay. So, um, one application of what we've just talked about is that many people overstate and misapply the teaching of uh, Genesis 12 uh, whoever curses Israel will be cursed, and whoever blesses will be blessed. Um, that's talking about during the millennium. That's not talking about today. Uh, if Israel and their you know, unbelieving leaders today were to go berserk and start firing Scud missiles at Washington, D.C., if I were the president, I'd fire right back. You know, they don't get a pass just because someday they're going to believe in God and be in the land. Um, they don't get to bomb innocent Arabs and you know, shoot up wedding parties and all that, which they have done. Okay? I mean, the media is largely one-sided, especially the conservative media. There's no question that primarily the, the uh, you know, all of those uh, terrorist groups, PLO and um, Hamas are the aggressors. But, you know, Israel's not perfect in this either. Sometimes they make mistakes and do things they shouldn't. So, 
we, we need to be objective in our understanding of it and recognize that we long for the day when Israel turns to the Lord and God supernaturally brings them back to their land and, and the whole global kingdom of peace and righteousness emanates from Jerusalem. We're not there yet. And, uh, and so we need to be aware, just, just like people have, a, uh, I think, a false view of America, American exceptionalism, where Americans can do no harm, you know, and you know, they understand Stalin and Hitler and all that, but they think our leaders would never do that. That's a very naive view, and it's also very naive to think that every Jewish leader is somehow a God-fearing, wonderful person and that today. That's just not the case. All right. I haven't provoked any responses with that last little bit. All right. Well, let's look at Revelation 22. So we, we checked out chapter 21 last time. Let's just throw it up there to quickly review. We said, what does John see? What does he hear in relation to the vision of the New Jerusalem? Then he actually is taken to the New Jerusalem. And again, we see what he sees, but notably what he does not see. We talked a lot about the fact that the triune God is the temple in the eternal state. And now we are going to move to chapter 22. So what, what we've been talking about is, uh, you know, you've heard of paradise lost, Milton, this is paradise regained, right? God is, the Bible is coming full circle to once again create a perfect creation that is untainted by sin. Uh, John had viewed the splendor of the New Jerusalem, and he saw uh, now in chapter 22, he kind of goes inside, if you will. So far, he's been sort of looking at Jerusalem, but now he's going to go in and see uh, how the, the, the interior looks. And Jay Vernon, the, the, the great J. Vernon McGee is such a wordsmith, and I wrote this down in my notes. Um, up to this chapter, the New Jerusalem seems to be all mineral and no vegetable. Its appearance is as the dazzling display of a fabulous jewelry store. We wonder if there is no soft grass to sit upon, no green trees to enjoy, and no water to drink or food to eat. Here, we see introduced the elements which add a rich softness to this city of elaborate beauty. And I think that's, as we step inside, that's what we're going to see. So the first thing we see in verses 1 and 2 is the river of life. The river of life. The clear as crystal river uh, is symbolic of the eternal refreshment and sustenance that God provides throughout all of eternity. That's a metaphor that is used time and again throughout the Old Testament. Prophets, the, the Psalms, Jeremiah, uh, a lot of references in Proverbs speak of this refreshment that comes from being with God and knowing uh, God. Uh, it, could, it could be an actual literal river, for all we know. That's probably the way I lean. But the importance of what John is relaying here is, and again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this isn't John's fanciful ideas, this is the Holy Spirit carrying John along to write. The, the, impor the important thing that he's trying to get across is that this is a time of refreshment, a time where, you know, uh, God is going to provide eternally for everything uh, we ever need. In the eternal state, God's people will actually finally live at the source of a life-giving stream, namely the very presence of God himself. 
so often you see, like in the Psalms, when God's people are estranged from God, either through their own uh, disobedience or feeling somehow wrongly, but feeling like God has abandoned them for some reason as they're going through hardships and trials, you know, as Israel was attacked by you know, enemy nations around them. Often they would, the kings would cry out. You see David a lot crying out, Where are you, God? Why now? Why me? Why this? What's going on? Um, what they often cried out for was just that, that, that life-giving sustenance. We want to be back in right close relationship with you. Now, we've already talked about uh, the significance of uh, this time when you know, God shall be with us and be our God and we shall be his people and speaking of that intimacy. And as, as wonderful as it is for us in this present church age to have unmitigated access to God through the new and living way that was opened up for us as the writer of Hebrews talks about, it pales in comparison to the actual presence of God uh, that we will, we will no longer need to go through, certainly not through an earthly priests like Israel did, but not even through the indwelling spirit, because we're going to be right there uh, with him. So the river of life, and then the tree of life, this has always uh, engendered a lot of um, speculation, most of it wrong, but what we need to understand is that when Adam and Eve fell, again, when you think about Revelation, you got to think Genesis. Um, in my book, What Lies Ahead, my eschatology textbook, guess where we start? Genesis. Well, we start with a couple of general, you know, why should we study prophecy and what, what are the different approaches in general, but here's what the Bible says. And then we start in Genesis with the Abrahamic promise. You can't understand the end of the story if you haven't read the beginning of the story. And so the description of this tree of life has to be understood within the context of the Garden of Eden. And when Adam and Eve fell, they lost their access to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Remember, they were banished and uh, Angels were put at the gates of the, the city. But in the eternal city, we will have access to the tree of life perpetually. That, that access is restored, if you will. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, it's not something that, you know, it requires us to eat like we got to get up every day and take a bite of it or we'll die. There is no death, right? That's already been made clear in chapter 21. Um, but it's, it's going to uh, essentially sustain immortality. It's, it's, uh, the, when it says healing, let's look at verse 2. Um, in the middle of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Healing there is kind of a bad translation in English because it implies you've been injured, and of course there is no injury. So this is just a poetic way of describing the scene in the same way that we saw God will wipe away tears from your eyes doesn't mean you're going to be crying in heaven. So a lot of people don't understand figures of speech and they, they kind of take an English translation and run with it. And I, I've run into this a lot, especially with the sorrow thing is you know, I'll say there's no sorrow in heaven and that people say, well, yeah, there is that because Christ is wiping away your tears. By the way, I'm not the one saying there's no sorrow in heaven. The text actually says that. Um, in Revelation 21, there shall be no more sorrow. So, uh, anyway, uh, same thing is true here with healing. It's it's a better translation would be health giving or sustaining. Um, you know, 
therapeutic. In fact, it's the Greek word therapeion, where we get the English word therapeutic, right? So that gives you some idea of what we're talking about here, uh, therapeion, health giving. Um, so the trees, leaves will, you know, just be a source of well-being and health and nourishment and, and just continue to represent the perfection and sustenance that we see uh, in, uh, in the kingdom. Um, I like the way one person answered this question. You know, it is sometimes asked whether the glorified saints are able to eat in heaven. I think we've talked about that in here. Um, we may safely answer that they can eat, although under no need to eat, just as we can enjoy a rose and yet not suffer from its absence. So in other words, we're not in our physical beings, we're in our glorified beings. So it doesn't pose any problems to think about eating as long as you understand that it's not something that is now required. Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall could go months just walking around looking at the luscious grapes on the vines and the beautiful fruit and, and think, wow, that's great. And then some days they might have said, hey, I'll take a bite, <laughs> you know, and enjoy it even more. But they didn't need to eat because their bodies were perfect, right? So, uh, you know, he gives us first the facts about this city. We've talked about the river of life, the tree of life, the throne, the purity, the divine light. If you look at verse 5, um, there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light for the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. I've been uh, thinking a lot about the running metaphor in Scripture between light and darkness, between God and Satan. God is light, right? Uh, in him is no darkness at all, First John tells us. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. What is Satan? He's the prince of darkness, right? Um, and... Uh, you know, when you're walking in darkness, you're not walking in close fellowship with the Lord. So, but can you imagine a time when there will be no more darkness? You know, yeah, there, my, my office at home is, is built out in the third bay of our garage. And to get to it, I have to go out in through the garage and around the cars and to the door to my office. Well, the other night I was out there and I had been out there since it was daylight well it turned dark and when I came to come back in there's no light switch by my office to turn the lights in the garage on so I started to just kind of feel my way around and after bumping into two or three little tools and my compressor and the car I finally got my phone out and just used it as a light but um, imagine what it'll be like when you never have to worry about those little anecdotes right it's just bright light and you can see older I get, the harder it is to see at night, you know, and um, I was working on something uh, at the kitchen table not too long ago, and I couldn't see. It was dark. It was at night, and we had the light on, but it was just that, that dull light that just I st still can't see, so I had to move somewhere where I could put it under a lamp and see. Well, you know, in, in, the, in the ultimate eternal state, there will be no night there, and what a, what a day that will be, and what a glory that will be. Um, so those are some facts about uh, the city. One more here. Let's look at verse 17. The Bible ends, as you've heard me say many times, with this wonderful, loving invitation. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts come. I mean, get the picture. Christ wants you to be there uh, with us. 
And whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. And so, um, again, we tend to compartmentalize portions of Scripture. Uh, we don't do that with any other book. You know, we don't pull out a chapter or two from a novel and, and try to make sense of it. We read the whole thing as a cohesive unit. And that's what we have to do with Scripture. And the picture that is painted of the new heavens and the new earth is one that is given to us precisely so that it will be an enticement to accept the free gift paid for on our behalf. Let's not forget that God is doing all of this. You know, We messed up His creation and separated ourselves from Him because of our own free will. And yet God took the extraordinary step of pulling us out of the muck and mire of sin, providing a remedy and offering it freely to everyone who will take it. And this description is really the ultimate um, dwelling place, the ultimate landing place of our faith. You know, our faith does a lot. It, it rescues us from the penalty of sin, right? That's God's mercy so that we don't get what we deserve. It gives us the gift of eternal life. That's grace, an undeserved gift. It uh, also sustains us in this daily life where if we walk by sight, we're going to be terrified every day, especially these days with all that's going on in the world. But if we walk by faith, we understand that God is working out His plan. Our faith is so central to everything, but ultimately our faith becomes sight in this moment when time shall be no more, sin is once for all dealt with, and we are back in right fellowship with, with the Lord. Any thoughts or comments? We've got about five minutes yet left. Yeah. Yeah, so the question is, when it says each tree yielding its fruit every month, we talked about this a little bit last week just in passing, that clearly there must be some way of reckoning the seasons that, um, as there was in the garden. It won't be the customary way that we have done it through the either the solar or the lunar cycles because those things won't be there. So, you know... Uh, there's really no easy answer to that, just except that it says what it says, and we leave it up to God to, you know, I think when we get there, we'll understand it, you know, so, good question. Yeah, this goes into comparing Scripture with Scripture, right? You know, we, we you know, we know what a month normally means in our nomenclature, but we also know there's not going to be a sun and moon there, so we just have to trust God that it, both are true. Somebody else. All right, you can't leave me hanging here. It will destroy my reputation if I let us out early. Yeah. So great question, uh, t referencing Revelation 21, 24. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor to it. So uh, if you think about God's plan of the ages, let's go back to a chart here. Let's just use that one. Um, there are three categories of people, broadly speaking. In the Old Testament, you had the Jews and the Gentiles, right? And salvation is of the Jews as Jesus told the woman at the well 
uh, anyone to come into right relationship with Yahweh in the Old Testament had to do so obviously through faith, but that involved the community of the Jews. They called it proselyte, um, you know, becoming a proselyte. So, um, so you know, there was Jews, there was Gentiles. Well, then you get to the New Testament, and the Bible unveils a third special group in God's plan of the ages that serves a special purpose, and that's the church. And the church is the bride of Christ. It has unique qualities. It's everyone that was saved from the day of Pentecost in 33 AD all the way up to present day until the rapture. The rapture puts an end to the church age. So in the kingdom, you'll have those same three categories of people. You'll have the Jews, the nations, and the church. And each will all be together and broadly speaking, all be the people of God in the sense that there's no unbelievers in the king, in the eternal kingdom but we still have our unique identity i will always be a, a, a part of the church uh, jews will always be jews gentiles will always be gentiles and so uh, i just think it's it's again the continuation of you know as we as we see this line here between the millennial phase and the eternal phase you know it's not like when we enter the eternal state all of the categories go away the categories are still there. It's just the physical ground on which we walk is no longer under the curse of sin. And then that also brings up some of the other things about night and the sun and all of that. But um, so, yeah, I mean, the uh, nations, the kings of the earth, yeah, they'll still be different regions in the country, just like there always have been. And Christ, well, the triune God will be the throne, the temple. And... Uh, People will, I mean, the, the globe is what it is. It's just going to be recreated in sinless perfection. Although it'll be interesting to see how much of our current globe is the result of, of the curse of sin and the judgment on sin. I mean, like, will there be a Grand Canyon? You know, will there be the different continents? You know, who knows? I guess we'll have to wait and see. But it'll still be round. And when I say round, I mean like a beach ball, not a pancake, just to clarify my view on that issue. So, all right. Um, anything else? Yeah. What's your feeling about uh, or understanding of the purpose after, after God creates the, the new heavens and the new earth? Why at that point is there or is there a delineation between the new earth and heaven? Yeah, so the question is the, the relationship between the new earth and the new heaven. So remember, we talked about the three levels of heaven, and the heavens is just what's surrounding the earth, and the earth is where we dwell. And so both were created. If we go back to Genesis and see the days of creation, we see them creating the celestial realm. So all of that, anything created fell under the curse of sin, and all of that has to be recreated. So there's still going to be... A heavens and an earth and um, by the way heavens and earth is a merism a figure of speech called a merism that refers to everything so when we when we say heavens and earth we're saying everything that God created because uh, it you know includes everything in the heavens and everything in the earth and everything in between it's not necessarily the concept of heaven as a spiritual domain right the third he the, the spiritual aspect of the heavens is that third heaven which is the abode of God so you've got the first heaven, which is where the birds fly and the planes fly. Then you've got the second heaven, which is where the planets and stars are. And then you've got 
outside of the created realm, the dwelling place of God. And that's where Paul went, by the way, in his vision. All right, awesome. Well, let's uh, take a break, and uh, we will come back together for worship here in the building at 10 o'clock. Those of you live streaming, as you probably know by now, we typically start the live stream uh, at around 1025 to 1035, depending when I get up uh, to speak. So we'll rejoin you here shortly.